Well, welcome to the beginning of our study of the Epistle of Paul to Philemon. And this evening we're going to do a bit of a once-over lightly, and we will go back into greater detail in subsequent sessions. But I want to begin with some matters of introduction. Uh, All seminaries have a course Well, let's put it this way. All decent seminaries have a course in New Testament introduction, which they examine the background, the authorship, and the general content of the 27 books of the New Testament. So we're going to do a little bit of introduction tonight. As you notice, we're going to talk about authenticity in the beginning of this session and canonicity. That's something else which is a part of New Testament introduction, so we want to address that this evening with respect to this letter of the Apostle Paul. And when I say letter of the Apostle Paul, I'm speaking with a vast majority of New Testament scholarship for the last 200 years. That is to say, whereas the vast majority of New Testament scholarship does not believe that Paul wrote Ephesians, or that he wrote the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Yes, that is true. The vast majority of New Testament scholars do not believe that Paul wrote those letters that have his name in the first verse. <laughs> because they're wiser than the apostles. No, that, that, that's a little unfair. But you understand that there is an issue about authentic Pauline authorship. And so we address this question of authenticity <clears throat> But with respect to the little epistle of Philemon, it has, shall we say, escaped unscathed of that scurrilous accusation that Paul's name on an epistle doesn't mean that he wrote it. It's good enough for me. It's been good enough for the church. It was good enough for the church for 1,800 years. But in the 19th century, uh, some smart Alex decided that they knew better than the church over 1,800 years before and they could sort out who had written uh, parts of the New Testament better than the persons who said they wrote the books themselves. Uh, Now, of course, uh, uh, being uh, satirical here, uh, but it is true that Philemon, of all the Pauline letters, escaped that controversy, with the exception of F.C. Barr, Ferdinand Christian Barr. Now, Ferdinand Christian Barr in the 19th century was the leading New Testament scholar in the world. He taught at the University of Tübingen in Germany, and his distinctive approach to the New Testament was labeled the Tübingen School. He created a school of disciples and dominated New Testament scholarship until the 20th century. Now, the dominant New Testament scholar of the 20th century was Rudolf Boltmann, at Marburg University, also in Germany, and the dominant New Testament scholar of the 20th, 21st century to date is N.T. Wright. They are all liberals. Liberals of various stripes, but they are still liberals. All right, well, back to F.C. Barr. Ferdinand Christian Barr developed an approach to the New Testament which was based on German idealism, that is a philosophy of the ideal, dominated the 19th century in German scholarship and German philosophical thinking, 
also trickled down into theology, and here we see it in New Testament scholarship. He was, uh, Barr was an idealist, but he was a particular type of idealist. That is, he was a Hegelian idealist. He was following the dialectic of uh, George uh, Hegel, Georg Hegel. And what Barr proposed was that we can see the New Testament as a kind of developmental process. In other words, the first Christians were converted Jews, like Peter, and they had a Jewish kind of Christianity, very much focused on Jewish imagery and Jewish messianism. But along comes Paul, and he has a different kind of New Testament Christianity. He has a Gentile Christianity. So he is, shall we say, changing the message of the New Testament to fit a Gentile audience. And that means that he and Peter come to blows. They clash, particularly in Galatia. So he explained the controversy between Paul and Peter in first chapter of Galatians due to the fact that these were sociological, cultural, and various theological clashes. They were, they were uh, battling one another. So he, pl- he posited, as Hegel's dialectic posits, that Jewish Christianity was the thesis of early Christianity. Pauline Christianity was the antithesis, that is, the opposite of Jewish Christianity because it was Hellenistic or Gentile Christianity. And then when the two clashed, we got a synthesis. They decided that they would compromise, or at least a compromise emerged, and that was Christianity from the Gospel of John or from the Johannine school. That was the synthesis of the thesis and the antithesis. John and early Christianity, which early Catholicism rather, which emerged over the course of the late first and into the second century. Barr was so confident that early Catholicism was a very late development in primitive Christianity that he dated the Gospel of John to 180 to 200 A.D., 180 years after Christ. Now you say, what was he smoking? Well, he was smoking Hegelianism. That's what he was smoking. He was smoking German philosophy. That's what he was smoking. He was using philosophy to impose presuppositions upon reading the New Testament text. And those presuppositions or that worldview dictated how he came to study the Bible. And he had a tremendous influence, tremendous influence, not only in Europe, not only in the United Kingdom, in Great Britain, and Scotland, but also in America. He was the bee's knees New Testament scholar of the 19th century. Now, what you see with this Hegelian approach is a very subtle form of theological evolution. Theological evolution. In other words, underneath Barr's thesis, or his theory of how the New Testament emerged was a, was a kind of developmental theological or philosophical theological uh, evolution. Okay? It developed in stages of an increasingly sophisticated Christianity. The Jewish Petrine Christianity was more primitive. 
The Pauline Christianity was a step above that. It was a little more sophisticated. It was an advance upon the Jewish Christianity. The Hellenistic Christianity of Paul was an, a development of an, an evolutionary advance. But the greatest achievement was Johannine Christianity, Gospel of John and that early Catholicism. Well, does that surprise us? What was emerging in the 19th century? What was the biological axiom, which was driving all the thinking of the scientific world? Well, it was Darwin's the, the, the origin of species of 1859, and it was also emerging from this kind of evolutionary or de developmental paradigm. So, we have a developmental paradigm in philosophy, Hegel and the dialectic. We have a developmental paradigm in biology or science, Darwin and the origin of species. We have the, the, the principle that there is nothing fixed. There is nothing absolute. There is nothing uh, a standard about what we find in the New Testament. What we find in the New Testament is a part of an emerging human religious theological development. And it'll go on. Because you see, the New Testament itself has no absolute value. It is a work in progress. It is a work which is continually emerging into a higher ideal. And there's the German idealism that's underneath that 19th century paradigm. Well, Barr was the lone voice crying out in the 19th century that Paul hadn't written the epistle to Philemon. Now, we are not going to, uh, to uh, uh, of course, defend that view, but I want you to be aware that there, there has been occasionally uh, voices raised against Pauline authorship of this epistle, though the vast majority of conservative and liberal New Testament scholars in the 19th and 20 and 21st century are uh, <coughs> agreed that Paul did write it. Now, that's a, a little uh, <coughs> dissertation on uh, how we come to this question of uh, how do we know Paul wrote it, and of course we'll look at that in a little more detail as we go along. Nonetheless, this acquaints you with the discussion. It also acquaints you with a little bit of every deviant view of the Bible is driven by a philosophy. It's driven by a worldview. So you see this deviant view of Barr with respect to the authenticity of Pauline authorship of Philemon, and you realize he's being driven by a philosophical word. It's not being driven by what the Bible says. It's being driven by a philosophy. It's imposing German idealism and German Hegelianism on the Bible, on the New Testament in particular. That is true of 19th century liberals. That is true of 20th century liberals. Rudolf Bultmann was imposing existentialism on the New Testament. And is true of 21st century liberals. N.T. Wright is imposing a form of postmodernism on the New Testament. Every place you look where you see a deviance from the inspiration and inerrancy of the Word of God, people who don't believe it, they are coming with a worldview that will not accept that. The worldview that they bring to the Bible is the worldview of the philosophy that dominates their culture. So you find the philosophy in the culture, and you'll find the key to their hermeneutic. You'll find the key to the way they interpret the Bible. You react with horror when you find these 
liberal theologians saying horrifying things about the Bible. You say, how can they say that? Well, they say that because they have a philosophical world grid out of which they operate. And that's what they impose upon the Bible. The Bible has to fit their grid. They don't fit the Bible's grid. They make the Bible fit their own. You see this in, in, here in this uh, little short description of Barr's own approach to Philemon. All right, you have any, any questions about that? <clears throat> All right, now, the next issue is canonicity. If, if it is authentically an epistle of Paul, then when did the church recognize it? When did the church receive it as canonical, that is, as inspired uh, uh, New Testament scripture? Well, we have some very interesting testimony or evidence about the canonicity of the epistle to Philemon, as well as the canonicity of some other New Testament works from the second century. Within shall we say, 50 years of the death of the last apostle, namely the apostle John. We have Marcion, a Christian heretic, who derives his own canon, but in that list he accepts Philemon. And we have the testimony of the Muratorian fragment, which was published about 170 A.D. Now, <clears throat> Marcion came to Rome as an unconverted individual about 140, 145 A.D. There he was discipled and allegedly converted, and he turned over his wealth to the church in the, the city of Rome uh, where he became a member. Within a year, he was weaned away from his Christian profession by a, a Roman uh, philosophical heretic, a Roman philosophical uh, pagan, and he decided that the God of the Old Testament could not be the same as the God of the New Testament. So he completely rejected the Old Testament as inspired scripture. Having done that, he had to reduce the New Testament books to that same paradigm. In other words, the God of wrath of the Old Testament had no place in Marcion's canon. So he developed his own list of authentic books. That list did not include three of the four Gospels. He would not accept Matthew, Mark, or John. And he would only accept parts of Luke. In addition to that, he would not accept all of the epistles of Paul. Nor would he accept any of the Catholic epistles. So he had a reductionist view of what was going to be authoritative scripture. All liberals follow that pattern. All liberals are ultimately Marcionites. They have a reductionist view of what they will follow. Now, they may say that they'll still hold on to the 27 books of the New Testament, but they'll reduce those books to a paradigm of what they think is valuable within them. So they create what's called a canon within the canon. Well, in the case of Marcion, he did accept the fact that Philemon was an authentic part of the New Testament. And we know that not because uh, we have Marcion's writings, very little of what Marcion wrote has survived, but because there was a famous North African church father named Tertullian who lived in Carthage at the end of the second century into the third century. And Tertullian wrote a magisterial 
uh, tome or volume against Marcion. And you'll notice that I've quoted him there. And this line is the testimony to the fact that even the heretic Marcion accepted the canonicity of the epistle of Paul written to Philemon. To this epistle alone, Tertullian says, did its brevity avail to protect it against the falsifying hands of Marcion. Now, there he noticed that Marcion accepted it, okay, which is the kind of, it's the kind of strongest testimony that you need. If, the, if your enemies say that's an authentic book, then that's, that closes the case, okay. So, but he goes on to, Tertullian goes on to muse a little bit. He says, I wonder, when he received this letter, which was written but to one man, that he rejected, he rejected the two epistles to Timothy and the one to Titus. So there's this, there's um, Tertullian pondering this arbitrariness of Marcion's paradigm where he would accept Philemon, but he would not accept First and Second Timothy and Titus. All right, now the Muratorian fragment, and if you want to see a copy of it, go back to our study on Jude. We posted that in our handouts for that study in the introduction to that series. If you, if we printed the, the English translation of that fragment. If, if we look at the Muratorian fragment, which is about 30 years after Marcion, Philemon is among those books listed in that fragment which are universally accepted. In other words, they are, uh, 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 they are received by the church Catholic, small c, which is what this statement says. The statement reads, even though Paul writes the seven churches, those are the seven churches of the, of the uh, letters that he wrote all together, his 13 letters, he speaks to all. Meaning, though he writes, writes to seven churches, uh, <clears throat> particularly he's speaking to all Christians. But he wrote out of affection and love, one to Philemon, one to Titus, two to Timothy, and these are held sacred in the honorable esteem of the church Catholic. This is a very important document. It tells us that the church had a collection of New Testament authentic and canonical books by the middle of the second century if not before, I think it's probably credible to suggest that it was as early as 110 A.D. when uh, Ignatius, a martyr of Antioch, was also uh, writing and, uh, and, and on his way to death. Uh, be that as it may, we have very uh, sound testimony to the acceptance of the canonical authority of the epistle of Paul to Philemon, in addition to his other letters, because the Muratorian fragment does talk about the canonicity of the Gospels, the canonicity of Revelation, the canonicity of some of the Catholic epistles, and the canonicity of all Paul's epistles. All right, any question about the canonicity issue? Go ahead, Randy. You don't know the name of the guy at the top, Marcio? Cerdo, C-E-R-D-O. And Muratorian who wrote that? Uh, it's not known. It's called Muratorian because of where it was discovered. It's an anonymous document. It's not signed, uh, but it's it's been traced back to about 170 A.D. Yes, Scott? Are you suggesting that 
canon was known about 110 because of the quotations Ignatius yes. and the church fathers made? Both, both Ignatius and Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome precedes Ignatius by about 20 years. In other words, we can see the, the way they're using scripture, they're using it authoritatively from at least 95 A.D. on. And that snowballs when we come to Justin Martyr and to Irenaeus and Tertullian himself in the second century, who are the major second century fathers. All right, now let's say a word about tools here, that is, ways to get into the epistle. And as I noted with the prophet Zephaniah and the dissertation by Ivan Ball at Berkeley in the 70s, which changed the whole paradigm approach to Zephaniah with respect to rhetorical criticism, rhetorical analysis, literary analysis, um, <clears throat> there's a paradigm shift in the study of the Epistle of Philemon. It comes from Norm Peterson's very remarkable work, Rediscovering Paul, Philemon and the Sociology of Paul's Narrative World. Now, there are buzzwords there, but the important thing is the narrative world of Paul. What Peterson does in this remarkable book is to look at this epistle in narrative style. He wants to extract the story from within the document. And it is a tour de force in that regard. I still remember my first reading of it in the 80s, and it completely changed my whole viewpoint of the epistle. <clears throat> now, Peterson is a liberal. He's a liberal sociological theologian, and he wants to reduce Paul to his own purposes, namely to turn him into a 20th century quasi-social activist. <clears throat> so there is an agenda behind what he is doing. But you leave out the agenda and see what he has done in terms of unpacking the narrative drama within the epistle, and that remains remarkable and important. So this book, in my opinion, is essential to the study of the epistle if you're going to do any serious work on it. But you realize what you're up against. You're up against the card-carrying liberal who has another sub rosa agenda. But you live in a world in which the news that you listen to every day has a sub-rosa agenda. So you ought to be used to sorting those kinds of things out, okay? If not, then you better get your critical antennae up. All right, so um, my point here is, uh, partic particularly if you have some seminary background or some theological exposure, you can handle this book to your benefit. It'll help you understand the drama of... Uh, the epistle, or simply keep coming to these studies on Thursday nights until we finish the epistle and you'll get the benefit of it all by way of me and I'll go beyond Peterson because I got my own slant on certain things in the epistle as well. Uh, Randy, you had your hand waving again. I don't know if it's fair to jump ahead like this, but is he wanting to conclude that Paul wants to abolish slavery? It, that, that will be one of the positions, yes. All right, now, um, I've often been asked in these studies on Thursday night what's a good commentary for the layperson, and I've often been able to give you suggestions in that regard. However, with respect to Philemon, I cannot recommend any at this point. 
That doesn't mean that one won't pop up here by the time we're done, but it's too late at the beginning. Now, I'm not the infallible judge of these things. There may be some things that you will find helpful, but in terms of a popular uh, treatment, which is up to date, the old Tyndall series uh, uh, that was decent in the 70s is simply out of date now. And the new Tyndall I cannot recommend because it's written by N.T. Wright, and I will not recommend that commentary. So for the lay reader, I don't have anything to suggest at this point. But for pastors, or for those of you that want to do some real serious study and want a 500-page tome to uh, lug around, (laughs) I spent my summer reading through it. The best conservative commentary comes from John Nordling, who has also written a number of very well-accepted critical articles on this epistle. It's been published in some of the more advanced New Testament uh, journals, uh, even journals which publish liberal stuff. The fact that he as a conservative has been able to break into that has been a testimony to the fact that what he is writing is very remarkable and credible. Nonetheless, um, this commentary is very well done. It's in the Concordia series. That's Concordia Theological Seminary, which is a Lutheran seminary. And as with all the commentaries in the Concordia series, you have this imposition of Lutheran sacramentalism on the text. They even have little symbols in the margins on the left and right-hand pages of the Lord's Supper or the baptismal font. So you know that you're going to get Lutheran sacerdotalism or Lutheran sacramentalism. So just, you know, be aware of that, you know, sort it out, dismiss it, uh, go on with the uh, benefit of his penetration of the text. And he does a very good job. Now, there are other commentaries on Philemon that you could examine, and you can find those on that list of biblical commentaries. We update that. I update that every month. Uh, so that you have an, uh, an ongoing reflection on new commentaries that have been released on every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. <clears throat> so you can check out any commentaries on this book by looking at Philemon or by any other book in the Bible if you're doing study on some other passage or some other uh, text. Now, uh, having said all that, the best critical study of Philemon, the most up-to-date Critical study is Francois Tomey from South Africa. <clears throat> this volume, entitled Philemon in Perspective, is a collection of essays by New Testament scholars from around the world. Some of them are stunning. Jeffrey Weimer, Ernst Wendland are absolutely superb. Now, Jeffrey Weimer was here almost 13 years ago to lecture on First and Second Thessalonians. It was a very beneficial time for us because he's a very fine New Testament scholar. He is an expert on Pauline introduction and Pauline conclusion, the epistolary style of the Apostle Paul. And he takes the benefit of that learning that he's had and applies it here to Philemon so that his contribution in this volume is very, very well, very worthwhile. It's excellent. The other one is Ernst Wendland. I've mentioned Wendland before. He is a uh, Wisconsin Synod Lutheran. He teaches in Lusaka in Zambia. He has been there for 50 years, and he is a polymath. He is one of the finest uh, structural, rhetorical scholars in the world, and he has written an outline of Philemon from a structural standpoint in his contribution to Ptolemy's volume, which is outstanding. 
I will quibble with him, and you will see my outline in which I will take some exception. But nonetheless, Wendland, anything that Wendland has written is worth grabbing it, worth getting. He's written on the Psalms. He's written on the prophets. He's written on the early stories of Genesis. He's written on a lot of New Testament material. He's a wonderful uh, conservative scholar. He committed to the high view of the Bible and to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saving grace of the gospel. So I have a great deal of respect for him, and he is well respected in the world of structural studies, both Old Testament and New Testament alike. Now, the downside to this volume is that it's extremely expensive. So this is for, for scholars. This is for persons that want to go deeper into the book. And, uh, you know, it lists for over $170 so it's not something you're going to run out, you know, to buy. So you're going to have to try to get it by interlibrary loan, which doesn't cost you anything, because they'll buy it from a library that did, that, from, which did, it did cost something too. Uh, so that's a one way to get it. Uh, I actually got a copy, and uh, and and made a copy. Uh, you're permitted under copyright law to make a copy for your own private use. So that's how that's how I saved 170 bucks. But I read it, and it was well worth reading. Any questions about the tools? Yes, Randy. When you say a critical study of a biblical book, what do you mean? All right. Uh, Critical in the sense that he's interacting with the other scholarly literature. He's talking about the history of the discussion of the particular part that he's contributing uh, critical in the sense that he is looking at the assessment of the issues, which are his assignment, and he's going through the literature, going through the discussion, going through the text, and commenting. Now, critical here is to be distinguished from higher critical. Higher critical is liberal deconstructionism. Now, it may be that some of the authors, and in fact some of the authors in Ptolemy's book, are deconstructionists. Uh, they want to reconstruct the text after they deconstruct it. But uh, what I'm interested in with that term critical is that they're engaging the issues in the text, and they're doing it in a penetrating way. They're pushing the envelope. They're advancing the discussion. Well, because that's the way the mind works. When your mind's working, you're critically evaluating. In any discipline, doesn't make any difference whether it's engineering, whether it's mathematics, whether it's biology, you see... You're critically evaluating, okay? Same way in theology. Biblical studies, we're critically evaluating. We've got a whole history of 2,000 years of what people have said about this epistle. So, you know, what are we saying about it in the light of that 2,000-year history of interpretation? Okay, so, so, so we're engaging it. See, you're engaging with Eusebius right now. So you're doing some critical thinking about Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, okay? That's what I mean. You're engaging the thought process. Study the Bible from a critical viewpoint in some sense. Yes, you're engaging the discussion, right? Okay, you're engaging the text in terms of the discussion. Yes. Now you're saying that Marcion was it? No, he said uh, he came to the conclusion that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God were two different gods, right? Correct. All right, so he rejects the Old Testament. Isn't that a logic disconnect? Wouldn't you do it the other way around? 
Well, he, he, he took the old saw, the God of love is in Jesus who talks about the love of God. So he took that premise and that canceled out the Old Testament. It canceled out parts of the New Testament as well. Well, logically, he's going with what he likes, not what is. That's correct. Yeah. But he's, you see, he's, he's establishing his own canon within the canon. But even there, you see, some part of Paul survives. Some part of Luke survives. Not all of Luke, but some part of Luke survives. None of the other Gospels do. It's just, it's just that kind of backdoor apologetic, you know, where even the enemies are testifying to the credibility, at least, of the epistle to Philemon. All right, now, what do we know about this epistle? How do we assess that? Well, let's begin by asking the question, where was Paul when he wrote it? And your answer is? Where? He is in prison in Rome. How do you know? Book of Acts. You know that he got to Rome as a prisoner. That is true. How do you know from this letter that he's in prison? He says so. Where did he say so, Pete? Right in the first verse. All right. We need something actually a little stronger than that. So if we look down to verse 10. This is one of the five places in this letter where he talks about being in prison. We could say that a prisoner of Christ in verse 1 is somewhat ambiguous. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ in other ways or a bond slave of Jesus not always speaking of himself that way when he's in prison. So uh, here in verse 10, it's clear that he's talking about his imprisonment as he does in verse 13 and as he does in verse 23 where he talks about his fellow, I'm sorry, verse 23, his fellow prisoners. There's another verse uh, in verse 9 which also talks about him being a prisoner. So five times in this letter, he talks about being a prisoner or his imprisonment. Randy? Rome, the prison in Rome is the only prison that Paul is supposedly to have written any letters from. Um, or was he in prison in any other? Yes, he was in prison in... Uh, God help me out. About whether he was in prison in Ephesus. Yes, yes, that's true. Ephesus, and, and he was also in prison in Palestine. Philippi. Oh, okay. Yeah, but not, not a, for a long siege. But Caesarea Philippi? Not, yeah, Caesarea. Not Caesarea Philippi. Was it Caesarea Philippi? Yeah, Caesarea Philippi. You're right. So there, there is the fact that you raise that, there are some that believe that he wrote this epistle when he was in prison in Ephesus. But that's not the dominant viewpoint. And what about first or second person in Rome? Like the first person in Rome? Let's hold off on that. Okay. <laughs> I agree with you. Let's hold off on that. Okay. All right. Now, what other letters are thought to have been written by Paul in the same circumstances? In other words, are there other prison epistles? Colossians is one. Ephesians. Ephesians is another. And Philippians is the last. So we have four prison epistles. 
Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. And our New Testament professor is suggesting maybe Second Timothy. Because he's suggesting his death is near. Yes. If there is a second imprisonment. But there you go. You're, you're pushing you're pushing your envelope. Critical thinking. It's critical thinking. <laughs> Congratulating you for your critical thinking, Scott. <laughs> All right. Now, to whom was it written? Abigail, to whom is this letter written? To Philemon. To Philemon. Yes, that was a no-brainer, wasn't it? About whom is it written? And how do you know? About whom? About whom is it written? Onesimus. Say it louder. Onesimus. Onesimus. And how do you know? I'm talking to the critical thinker back then. He talks about him throughout the letter. He, he, but he only knows, names him one place. Where does he name him? Oh, about verse 10. Verse 10. All right, so we know from verse 10 that he is writing about Onesimus. And what is the major purpose or subject of this letter? Reconciliation. Wait, pardon? <laughs> Were you? No. Pete, go ahead. Relation for slavery. Relation for slavery? Reconciliation. That's the word I want. Reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. So, we have this basic point of the epistle right up front. This is an appeal for reconciliation. All right, now let's take a look at the form of the letter. Structure of the letter. Most of you have been with me long enough that this is a very important part of my own hermeneutic because it's an important part of the scriptures, important part of the way God inspired the word that he put into the minds and through the pens of those whom he called to write his divine self-disclosure in written form. All right, let's take a look at the first three verses. Now, as you read those three verses... What label would you put upon this part of the structure of the letter? What would you call this part of the letter? My Bible says greedy. Greedy. I like that word. All right. In your old grade school days, what did, what did they teach you to do when you were writing a personal letter? The salutation, yes. This is the greeting or salutation. First three verses are the salutation of the apostle. All right, notice how verse 4 begins. So what would you call this section of the letter? The Thanksgiving section, correct. Now, we're noticing here that Paul tends to follow this sequence when he writes a letter. Okay, Tends to. There are some exceptions. But here, he's following his general pattern. Now, you can compare what we pointed out with respect to the salutation in the other prison epistles, Colossians 1, 1 and 2, Philippians 1, 1 and 2, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, 
Same with this Thanksgiving portion. <clears throat> Colossians 1.3, Philippians 1.3, and Ephesians 1.16. There, you'll notice that the Thanksgiving is long delayed in that letter. It comes far after the salutation and introduction. Quite interesting. So, number three, the bulk of Paul's remarks are found in verses 8 to 20. What would you call this portion or section of the letter? The body. The body. The body of the letter. And Paul ends in verse 25, actually 23 to 25. What would you call that portion of the letter? The closing. Very good. All right. So we have salutation, thanksgiving, body, and closing. Fairly simple structural outline. But let's consider the structure of the letter in another way. List for me the names of the humans in verses 1 and 2. Who are they? First? The humans. First? First? Paul? Second? Timothy? Third? Philemon? Third? Fourth, rather? Apphia? Okay. And fifth, Archippus. Archippus. How many? There are five names. All right, now let's take a look at verses 23 to 24. List the personal names of the humans in those two verses. First of all, Epaphras. Epaphras. Next. Mark. Next. Aristarchus. Aristarchus. Next. Demas. And finally, Luke. Beloved Luke. Okay. How many names? Five. Ah. Paul is up to something, isn't he? Okay. What do they have in common? Oh, I skipped that under number three, didn't I? Okay, let's go back to number three under C. Sorry. Got ahead of myself. What do the first five have in common? How do you know? Calls them beloved fellow workers. Mm, something else. Verse 2. Peter? Soldiers. Your name, your name is not Peter. <laughs> They're all part of the church that meets in fighting his house. So they're Christians because they're part of the church in Philemon's house. Now, what do the last five have in common? 
They're part of the church as well, aren't they? This time the church Catholic or universal. Church particular in the beginning, the particular church in Philemon's house, and here, broader church, church Catholic, that is, they have part of the broader church that Paul has gathered through his missionary journeys. Now, let's take a look at the the words in verse 3 that are duplicated in verse 25. And what do you note? Verse 3 and verse 25. Grace, Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, grace and the Lord Jesus Christ are duplicated in both verse 3 and verse 25. Now, we can fill in the outline that compares the pattern of symmetry. This is a Semitic idiom, okay? The Semitic idiom loves symmetrical Parallelism, parallelism, duplication. Paul is a Semite. He's been trained as a Jewish Pharisee. He understands structure. So he lays out this epistle in a patterned, symmetrical style. In verses 1 to 3, you can write in the five names again. Plus the phrase, grace the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 23 to 25, you can write five names again. Different names, but nonetheless a pattern of five names. Plus the phrase, grace the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins and ends this letter in exactly the same way, symmetrically, duplicatively, with parallel nuance. What do we call that? What is the name for that literary device? That structural pattern? An inclusio. It is an inclusio. So why does Paul include the body of this letter within this framing bracket? Why does he envelop his epistle in this Inclusio. Why does he bring the characters and the drama of this narrative between the brackets of five names plus the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and five names, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why does he do that? Randy? It's supposed to be read by the church. Because what? It's addressed to the church. It's addressed to the church? Okay. Or should be read. What's going on in the church? <clears throat> Both in Philemon's house and in the church chapel. What's going on in the church? Why does he include them between grace of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end? By the grace of God, they to be united. They're folding, folding them in to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's including them in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's framing them, bracketing them, enveloping them. Because in the church, 
whether it's in Philemon's house or whether it's in the world, in church Catholic, something new is occurring. Something new is going on. Something so new that it transforms human life. So, he wants to feature that. He wants to frame it. He wants to bracket it. He wants to place it in a structural inclusio so that his audience will look inside the inclusion of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we'll take a break now, and we'll come back after you've had a chance to stretch your legs, get some refreshments, and continue. All right, now, we're at the D section of page number two, actually number three, where we want to examine the distribution of the names of Christ in the epistle, and we want to list them in order. So we'll begin with verse one, and what is the first name of Christ that is there? Oh, don't be shy. That would be easy. It is Christ is first. What's the second name of Christ? Jesus is second. Now, if you look down to verse 3, what's the third name of Christ? We're going to be here all day if we don't answer these things. That's right. Lord, right? The next one is Lord. And what comes after that? Jesus, and what comes after that? Christ. Christ. Very interesting, isn't it? Okay, look at the symmetry. All right, now let's go down to verse 23. And incidentally, what you're reading in your English translation is based upon the order of the Greek text. So it is in the original. All right, verse 23. Christ is first. Then? Jesus is second. Then, Lord is in verse 25, and next, Jesus, and finally, Christ once again, an exact symmetry. All right, now the, per, the pattern that we've outlined there, if you filled in the blanks, the pattern is again another literary device or rhetoric or flourish. What do we call it? Bob, what do we call it? Did you, did you see how Kay filled it out? Does that help you? Okay. Anyone? Not an inclusio. It is a chiasm. It's a duplicate chiasm. It's a chiasm in verses 1 to 3, and it's a chiasm again in verses 23 to 25, but it is an exact duplicate chiasm. So even as he structurally formulates the beginning and end of this letter in an inclusio, he also uses another structuring or literary device. He chiastically features the beginning and end of this letter with respect to who or whom. What's this, what are these chiasms all about? Jesus Christ. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, aren't they? In fact, the Lord is at the pivot point in each of those chiasms. The hinge point of the chiasm is the Greek word kyrio, the Lord. So why is the lordship of Christ pivotal to this epistle? Why is it the hinge of his chiastic inception and his chiastic conclusion? Perhaps we serve him alone. I won't rule that out. Anything else? As opposed to serving a master slave. I won't rule that out. Since he's dealing with slaves? Since he's dealing with an estimate of slaves? Huh? But yet, you see, putting the Lord at the center of the chiasm. He's going to get reconciliation. Pete, go ahead. If he's going to bring reconciliation, it has to be the Lord who is acknowledged as Lord. Okay, so something is happening in the Lord. Bob? Authority. It's mm, not out of you, but in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that new thing that we said that is within the inclusio of this epistle, what, what, the, what the energy, what the mechanism of that transformation, that new thing is... It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. That is true. (laughs) That is true. This transformation includes a rich abundance of realities. Regeneration, being begotten anew, a rebirth, becoming a child of Paul as he's a child of God. So the point is that in framing this and in chiastically placing the names of Christ in this symmetrical order with the hinge on the Lordship in the Lord Jesus Christ, this change, this new thing has arrived. And he's bracketing it in such a way that the readers or hearers of the epistle will pick up on the chiastic inclusio, the chiastic duplication. All right, now... That's the beginning and end of the letter. Let's take a look at the occurrences of the Christological titles or the names of the Lord elsewhere in the letter. And let's begin with verse 5. So what, do you, what word do you find there? No, we're talking about Christological titles. Once again... Lord, Lord, and then next, Jesus. Now verse 6. Christ, verse 8. Christ again, verse 9. Christ and then Jesus. Verse 16. All right, so within the body of this, we also have a kind of a chiastic order of the Christological names or the titles of Jesus, including his name, which center upon the Messianic title, the word Christ. And it is balanced, balanced uh, in, in reverse order. Now... I observe the symmetry. 
the focus then in the body of this letter is upon Christ. The focus at the inception and conclusion of this letter is upon the Lord. Yes, it's the Lord Christ, but here in the body it's upon Christ the Lord. That's a mirror pattern. That's a reflection. The Lord is the Christ. Christ is the Lord. All of the drama in this letter is centered focally upon the Lord Christ. Now, on top of that, on top of this rich distribution in a symmetrical, in a reduplicative pattern, in a parallel pattern, on top of this, the apostle uses two of his favorite Christological phrases. Now, I have written them in Greek, transliterated them into uh, English style so that you can see them uh, as they be translated, transliterated into our uh, English characters. But let's look at verse 8 to actually see the text. What does he say there in that eighth verse? He uses the Greek phrase, en Christo. In Christ. In Christ. He repeats it in verse 20 and 23. The en Christo is one of Paul's favorite designations of the relationship of the believer to his Lord. It occurs over 15 times in his epistles. So if you count them up, you will find that there are nearly 20 of them, 20 occurrences of this phrase. It is a dominant theological clue to how Paul thinks. Now, he also uses another phrase, and that occurs in verse 16. In Greek, and kyrio. Some of you know the Kyria eleison from the Mozart Mass, the other Requiem Masses, which are classical music favorites. <clears throat> Kyria eleison. What does Kyria eleison mean? Lord have mercy. Kyria is the Greek word for Lord. Okay, here, here you see it. Uh, kyrio. Term, not a Latin term? No, it is not. It's a Latinized Greek term. It's taken over into Latin from the Greek, but they got the Kyria root from Kyrios in, in Greek, rather. All right, so the phrase there in verse 16 is in the Lord, and that occurs again in verse 20. Now, notice, in five instances in this letter, five Verses out of 25, Paul talks about in Christ or in the Lord, en Christo or en Kyrio. What is the sense of that preposition in when he uses it this way? What is he trying to describe? Why is this one of his favorite phrases? All the promises we receive being 
Grafted in with Jesus Christ. Grafted meaning what? Regenerated. United. United. What up? No. What else? United is good. Okay, so the in is in by way of union. It's union with Christ. It's the mystical union. It's the spiritual union. Okay, is that in Christ a participation in Christ? Yes. Is that in a participation in all his grace and benefits? Yes. Yes, it is a union with Christ which unites us to the benefits that are in him. What are those benefits? Is justification one of those benefits? Is adoption one of those benefits? Sanctification one of those benefits? Yeah, so all the rich benefits of what it means to be identified with Christ, to be in him, joined to him, participating in him, identified with him. The in means union, identification, participation, relation, all of the richness that comes out of being drawn into the life of the risen Son of God. That is true, too. We tend to forget that in America. All right. So this phrase is essential to Paul's argument here because that is in that participation that the reconciliation will be realized, if it will be realized. It is in Christ that this relationship of estrangement will be reversed. It is in Christ that this uh, offense will be pacified and placated. It is in Christ that this animosity will be replaced by love. Because in Christ, there cannot be that those other uh, uh, <clears throat> those other feelings and expressions. Okay, so this this little prepositional phrase is very important to Paul's theology. In fact, it's the key to his redemptive historical biblical theology. In Christ is in the Christ of history, in the Christ of Calvary, in the Christ of the empty tomb, in the Christ of of the ascension in the Christ who is seated in the heavenly places. It is in that Christ, the very Christ that he saw on the Damascus Road, the vision that changed his whole life. Remember, what stopped the Apostle Paul was not a doctrine. What stopped the Apostle Paul was the person of the risen Christ. That's what stopped him in his tracks. He saw resurrection. He saw life out of death, right in front of his face. And he could not be Saul anymore. He had to be Paul, the Christian, from then on. That is the key to being in Christ. He was drawn into Christ in that Damascus Road experience. He was drawn out of the death of Pharisaic Judaism into the life of the age to come, into the life of heaven Itself, He saw himself at that moment drawn into the one who is seated in heavenly places and he realized that by his appearance he had drawn him into union with himself. 
into participation in that same glory, into identification with that arena, the arena of the eschaton. So, the focus of the letter is centered in Christ or in the Lord. And as we proceed, we will attempt to unpack the rich details of that participation, that identification, that union, that relation. It is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Any questions? You were going to say something about the second imprisonment, or is that to next week? I will say this about the second imprisonment. I think it happened. <laughs> the, the, the nubbly question here is, how do we justify Paul's comments in the pastoral epistles about his longing to go to Spain and so on. And did he, in fact, accomplish that journey? It is likely that he did, because otherwise you can't fit the pastoral epistles into the chronology of his Roman imprisonment. Now, that's a challenge of uh, the pastorals, and for that reason, the liberals won't accept them as Pauline. They call them Deutero-Pauline, That is, they were written by someone who pretended to be Paul after Paul was dead. That, of course, is not acceptable to us as uh, believers in the inspiration of Scripture. So, therefore, it argues strongly for his release from the Roman imprisonment at the end of the book of Acts, his release from the imprisonment that we are reading about here in Philemon and the other three prison epistles, his release, and then his... uh, uh, going to the West, perhaps to Spain, which was one of his goals, and then being imprisoned for the second time and executed, perhaps during the Neronian persecution between 64 and 68 A.D. Ben, your your brow is furrowed. You you look like... Yeah. (laughs) Critical work, right, Ben? All right, now this is a huge debate. Even amongst conservative or Bible-believing scholars, it's a huge debate. But I stand on the traditional point here, uh, if I'm going to authenticate the Pauline authorship of the pastorals, and I am, I'm going to defend them vigorously, then chronologically they have to have been written after he was released from the first Roman imprisonment. That's That's the only place that fits, at least the only way I see it fitting. Why? Uh, Because he's talking about things that are subsequent to events in the prison epistles. And I'll try to outline that over the next couple of weeks. We'll we'll actually take a look at some of those passages. One of them is the change in Demas. Withering to the references, one of the early church fathers who said he went to Spain, I can't remember which of the church fathers he was. No, I don't remember which one either, but... Yeah, Witherington's chronology, Ben Witherington, at, at uh, where is he now? He was at Ashland for a while. Is he at Asbury? 
Okay. Ben Witherington, who is, is in general a very sound New Testament scholar, conservative New Testament scholar, he's a bloody Arminian. Man alive, it makes you mad when you start reading some of the stuff he's saying. But nonetheless, at his commentary on Philemon, he said, I worked through his commentary on Philemon, that thought he said, tearing out my hair, <laughs> certain parts of that. But other parts that are very good. But he's written a very fine outline of New Testament chronology. And it, it's, it's the best up-to-date conservative treatment of the issues, the critical issues in trying to date the New Testament epistles as well as the journeys of Paul and the life of Peter and John, etc., it's, it's commendable. It's a commendable piece of work. There's nothing infallible about it, but nonetheless, it does, it does, it does justify all the data. That's my point. And he does believe in a second imprisonment. Go ahead, Pete. What, did, what do you think of Purvis's book? Purvis's book. Now, which Purvis are you talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm the one that Princeton. Oh, George Purvis? Yeah. No. Uh, too old, too dated. Um, Okay. No, I'm just, I'm thinking, just the chronology. No, it's too dated. Too dated? Too dated, yeah. When you're talking about these technical issues, these are good questions. When you're talking about these technical issues, you have to get to the best contemporary scholarship in discussing them because there's so much that's been done in archaeology over the last hundred years which has altered slightly some of these dates one way or the other. Also, it's given us a better overall uh, picture of the chronology. Did you see what hit the news, li- news wires on Monday? That they think they discovered the trial court of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps Herod's court or Pilate's praetorium? Excavating underneath the city of David in Jerusalem? Now, there's no inscription, but what they see there fits the description of Gabbatha, in the Gospel of John. So, interesting stuff. All right, I'm going to have a handout after we close, so don't run away. I'll I'll come to you with it, because you have homework. You have an assignment for next week, and I'll give you a packet to work on. And do your best. You'll get the right answers when you come back. But at any rate, I'll give you something to keep your mind occupied. Critical thinking over the next week. Let's pray. We do give you thanks for the richness of what it means to be in Christ. And the unworthy, unmerited gift that that is to sinners such as we are. A gift that was granted through Christ. Because he has obtained all the riches of grace and glory for us. So in this letter, Lord, allow us to see those treasures. Allow us to understand what identification and participation, yea, union with Christ means existentially, experientially, actually. Let us rest upon that wonderful reality, drawing even greater strength and encouragement on our life day by day from being in Christ, in the Lord.
And we will praise you in that relationship and out of that relationship now and forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, who has brought us into that sweet union, we pray. Amen.